Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I am the second host, Aaron Maté. How are you, Katie? I'm good. You? I'm well. I'm well. It's been a busy time. I'm working on my book. And so uh, I can't wait till it's done. <laughs> Have you broken any more political news this week? Oh, you mean like my Cornell West scoop? Yeah. Uh, not really. Let's see. What did I, I mean, we, I did interview, um, Omalia Chatella mm -hmm. and Penny Hess and their, uh, Penny's attorney, Leonard Goodman mm -hmm. about their indictment as, as we've covered on the show before, um, Omalia Chatella, who is the chairman of the African people's socialist party and also a leader of the Uhuru movement. He and some other members of the African people's socialist party have been indicted crazily enough over uh, weaponizing free speech, which I can't believe they're actually saying that part out loud in the um, indictment. But yeah, they're accused basically of being Russian agents because they say things that uh, are critical of the Ukraine proxy war. And the world is so crazy. There's so much going on that this story has just not gotten the attention that it deserves. Also right. because, you know, these are people who are being targeted with McCarthyite tactics right. for being dissenters on the proxy war consensus. And, you know, we've normalized that now, just going after people who dissent from the party line when it comes to Russia-related matters, accusing them of being Russian agents. That's now normal in U.S. politics. But, you know, when you compare their case to, like, the actual influence peddling that goes on in Washington. So these people are accused of getting a few thousand dollars for travel expenses to go around the country and basically advocate for peace, like not having yeah. a proxy war with Russia. Well, meanwhile, by the way, they're critical of Russia on all sorts of other things. So they're accused sure. because this money came from Russia. They're accused of being foreign agents. Right. right? It's a few and they attended a conference also. They attended a conference. Okay. Uh, like inside in Russia. Russia? Yeah. Okay. I mean, they attend conferences all over. They attend conferences in Spain, but yeah, they attended yeah. one in Russia. Yeah. Meanwhile, like, you know, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE, all these governments have, you know, spend tens of millions of dollars hiring lobbyists in Washington. Right. So many times these people do not register as foreign agents as they're supposed to under right. federal laws, and no one ever gets prosecuted. Right. The one exception came with Paul Manafort, Trump's campaign manager. That was only because the Mueller investigation needed a prosecution to look credible. So they went after Manafort on these foreign agent charges that they otherwise would never have prosecuted before. And in fact, he'd previously been investigated over them, but that but the DOJ dropped it. So it's just like the hypocrisy is so glaring and the media won't touch the story because the targets are people who are critical of the proxy war uh, consensus. And it's the FBI going after them. And, and we're supposed to love the FBI now. So, you know, yeah. So that that's great. You're still covering that story. Yeah. So I had them on the Katie Halper show. I also interviewed Glenn Greenwald, and I'll be releasing that uh, next week. And it was a really moving interview I did with Glenn Greenwald, where he announces an institute that he's setting up for his late husband in, in the name of his late husband, David Miranda, um, which continues to kind of honor his life and legacy. So that was a great interview, really personal and moving. So that'll be on the Katie Halper show also. That's great. That's very exciting. Yeah. And I got him also because he's one of the few people who covered the Uhuru story, mm. the African People's Socialist Party story. I got him to comment on that, too. And he thinks it's a major violation of the First Amendment. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Should we get to our four basic food groups? Yes, let's do it. And before we do that, we, of course, want to remind you that you can get even more of the show than you already get. 
by becoming members at either Substack, usefulidiots.substack.com or locals, usefulidiots.locals.com. And if you go there, you get a full interview. You're definitely going to want to see our extended interview with this week's guest. I guarantee it. It has a lot of really important information in it that you won't hear anywhere else. And you also get our Thursday Throwdown, which is your midweek dose of media madness where we react to cable news clips. And this week and this week only, we are offering this for free at Locals so people can familiarize themselves with Locals. And to do that, go to usefulidiots.locals.com. All right. So for our four basic food groups, I have Democrats suck. And we have some news from friend of the show, Stacey Plaskett. She is a non-voting member of Congress from the Virgin Islands. And most of you who follow the show will recognize her as the delegate who called Matt Taibbi, the founder of the show, a so-called journalist. So this is the latest on Stacey Plaskett from journalist Lee Fong. And this is what he reports. New court filings show that delegate Stacey Plaskett, a Democrat from the Virgin Islands, one of the most popular Democrats on MSNBC, not only lied about her years-long fundraising from Jeffrey Epstein, she also literally worked for Epstein's shadowy tax and political influence fixer before entering public office. So Stacey Plaskett is the latest person to have an Epstein connection, and it's pretty embarrassing when you look at the details. Let's go through Lee Fong's thread here. Plaskett's LinkedIn shows a two-year gap before entering Congress from 2013 to 2014. Those years, Plaskett worked for Erica Kellerhalls, Epstein's tax attorney and advisor who helped steer tax credits, political influence, and charitable donations for the powerful pedophile. So, I don't know. I find that really hilarious. Stacey Plaskett, uh, when Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberg te uh, testified about the Twitter files, she called them so-called journalists. She also uh, accused them of endangering people. Now she's caught basically misleading people about her own connection to someone who's actually dangerous and who actually hurt people. That's Jeffrey Epstein. So maybe she was projecting. I think she was. Wow. <laughs> I think she was. <laughs> she needs to do stop doing so much of this and doing a lot more of this. That's right. For, for people who are just listening, I pointed outwards at first mm -hmm. and then pointed towards myself second yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's the Michael Jackson song, Man in the Mirror. Mm, yeah. And uh, the, in Stacey Plaskett's case, it be, could be called The Projector in the Mirror. How about yeah, that? that's true. Yeah. I like mm -hmm. that. That's really mm -hmm. good. Or the is... or the, or the non-voting member of Congress in the mirror or the delegate in the mirror. Right. Yeah. I'm looking at the non-voting member of Congress in the mirror. Yeah, it really rolls off the tongue. Do it, Stacey. Do, Do it, Stacey. Stacey. We'll support you. Yeah. yeah. All right, for Republicans suck, we have some interesting comments that uh, Donald Trump made over the weekend on Saturday. Let's go to the videotape. Made them competitive. Today, I'm announcing a new plan to protect the integrity of our immigration system. Federal law prohibits the entry of communists and totalitarians into the United States. But my question is, what do we do with the ones that are already here that grew up in it? I think we have to pass a new law for them. Using federal law in Section 212F of the Immigration and Nationality Act, I will order my government to deny entry to all communists and all Marxists. Those who come to and join our country must love our country. We want them to 
love our country. We don't want them when they want to destroy our country. Welcome to America. We want to destroy your country. Thank you very much. So we're going to keep foreign, Christian-hating, communists, Marxists, and socialists out of America. We're keeping them out of America. So uh, that's Trump offering some new details about his uh, immigration plans and immigration platform. It is true that actually U.S. immigration law says that any immigrant, quote, who is or has been a member of or affiliated with the communist or any other totalitarian party or subdivision or affiliate thereof, domestic or foreign, is inadmissible. And that law dates back to 1918. But it's still on the books. There are exceptions, though. Uh, if you had to join the party to get a job or if your membership was issued when you were less than 16 years old, you're OK. This is different, though, because he wants to prevent you from even coming to the country as opposed to prevent you from becoming a citizen. Yeah. So how would this work? Like when people enter the U.S. now, are they going to be asked along with, like, are you carrying any firearms or right. agricultural products? Are, are there going to be, is there going to be a question on the form saying, are you a communist or a Marxist? Are you now, or have you ever been a member of the communist party? I mean, we, we have such a funny political system. So Trump's opponents are constantly red baiting him, accusing him of being a, a Russian traitor. Right. He's, his response to all this is to then turn around and say, Hey, if you're a communist, or, or a Marxist, I'm going to McCarthyite you as well. So it's just like we have, we have McCarthyism across the board. There's really no escape. Yeah. And uh, I mean, um, it's almost though as if he's making fun of his own proposal, like what he says there, like, what are we going to do about the ones already here? We'll have to pass a new law. Right. And he's kind of like scoff. It's, I think he realizes how ridiculous his whole thing is, but he's so committed to it that he's just, you know, he's he's going full steam ahead. But he's there's even though, of course, it's so chilling what he's saying and it'd be a, a it's it's totalitarian. There's just something really funny about it. It is funny. Yeah, yeah, it would be funny if it weren't true. One of mm. those things. Yeah. Okay, for isn't that terrible? We just went through this whole big story with the submersible, these people who lost their lives trying to search for the ruins of the Titanic. And this is how the New Republic, uh, you know, storied liberal publication, this is how they covered the story when it was all happening. Check out this headline. OceanGate CEO missing in Titanic sub had history of donating to GOP candidates. And Matt Taibbi, founder of the show, writes, Welp, I guess we should hope they all die slowly and gasping in terror then. Uh, congrats, New Republic. You found a new low on Twitter. And yeah, I just thought this was a really poor taste. Like these people, at this point, it wasn't sure what these people's fate were, hoping to rescue them from this horrible ordeal. And the New Republic is like talking about who they were donating to as if that had some bearing on their lives, you know, right. and, and on their worth, the worth of their lives, the yeah. worth of their lives. I don't know. That's I thought that was weird. Yeah. Well, they, they did die, but they were Republicans. So, yeah, there's that. Yeah. 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 I mean, if some of them, if some people on the ship donated to Democrats, would that would that maybe offset the Republican? Oh, right. That would make it a new that would make it kind of a. Net, yeah, net, like, net neutral. Yeah, maybe even worth saving. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, callous disregard for life right there by the New Republic. Yeah. Um, which I'm not a fan of. They've Every time they've written about me, they've insulted me. So already, you know, I'm not impressed with the New Republic. And this is, uh, I think, a new low. Even yeah, lower so, even lower than insulting me. Right. So that's a double, isn't that terrible slash isn't that predictable? Mm-hmm. So for Isn't That Weird, we have a story about uh, a new fad, and this fad is called 
penis filler shots. So reading at the New York Post, penis enlargement is on the rise. Filler shots are all the rage now. Reading at the New York Post, because that's a great place to read. Uh, it's the secret weapon in a different battle of the bulge. Dissolvable penis injectables. I feel like I'm holding a baseball bat, Carlos M. 25 said, while describing his post-filler phallus to the Post. The Bronx native tacked on a whopping one and a half inches to his tallywhacker by going to Lushful Aesthetics, a New York City-based cosmetic medicine company that, among other procedures, helps widen people's willies. Carlos is one of the many men who are sex-spanding their horizons with injections of hyaluronic acid-based penis fillers, which are non-surgical, last for more than a year, and are reversible, unlike more invasive implant techniques. Uh, the penis pumping procedures have been going around since 2016 in the million-strong filler community, but popularity is swelling big time in 2023. So yeah, this is a procedure that can uh, broaden your penis by up to half an inch per session. Uh, some patients even add an overall two inches. And uh, I guess the reason it's safer is because hyaluronic uh, acid is something that's already in our bodies. Well, uh, Katie, you know, a little peek behind the scenes here. We all know that, you know, I'm I'm always a little uncomfortable with these with the profuse penis content that we do on the show, right? And so you know I have to I have to grapple with yet another penis story to, right. uh, to deal with. But um, I certainly agree with you that this is weird. This is a very very well yeah. weird weird procedure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The things people do, you know. The things people do, yeah, yeah. But it sounds safer, so I'm actually it's an isn't You're that a relief? You're yeah, on I'm board. on board. I'm pro penis filler. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> For this week's guest, we have returning to the show, Scott Ritter. He is a former Marine Corps intelligence officer and former UN weapons inspector, author of many books, including his latest Disarmament in the Time of Perestroika. And Scott has a lot to say, as always, about the proxy war in Ukraine. We're going to talk about the Wagner Rebellion, Ukraine's counteroffensive, and how possibly this horrible disaster could end. So let's go to Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The big news of the week is this uh, failed revolt, protest, whatever you want to call it, in Russia by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the mercenary uh, Wagner force. Now, the dominant line we got initially was that this is going to turn into a civil war in Russia. Lots of Russians are going to be killed. That was promoted by the likes of Michael McFall and Ann Applebaum. After the revolt was quickly put down and you know, not even a single shot was fired on Moscow, the new narrative became, okay, Putin avoided a coup, but he's considerably weaker as a result. What do you make of what happened and this narrative that we're getting in the West, that, that, perma that Putin is permanently damaged as a result of this? Well, I think I'll, I'll contradict um, McFall on both counts. Um, we were extraordinarily dangerous, we being the world. And, and I think we have to understand this isn't just an internal Russian issue. This is a, uh, an issue of global importance. Let's just set the stage for a second. Russia is a nuclear power uh, engaged in an existential war, a war it has defined as uh, of existential nature um, against the collective West. Yevgeny Prigozhin the head of a rogue mercenary army that um, Russian intelligence believes 
whom Russian intelligence believes has been actively conspiring with uh, Ukrainian intelligence since at least January of, of this year, is now leading a march on Moscow, uh, the goal of which is to overthrow the government of Russia. People can say, well, he never threatened Putin. He did actually threaten Putin. Uh, first of all, when you say I'm coming in to get rid of your defense minister and the uh, chief of staff of your armed forces, you're saying I'm coming after you. And then after Putin didn't uh, roll over, he said, uh, yeah, you're done too. So, no, this was an armed coup designed to topple Vladimir Putin, the leader of a nuclear armed state engaged in an existential struggle for its survival with the collective West, the intelligence services of which might be controlling Prigozhin. So let's just get the record straight here. So there was a chance for not only real violence, and there was violence. People tend to forget that uh, numerous helicopters and one fixed-wing fixed aircraft were shot down by the Wagner forces, killing 10 to 12 airmen. And the uh, Russian helicopters, military helicopters, did fire on the Wagner column, killing two Wagner soldiers and wounding three. So there was violence. It's not like there was no violence. And there was the potential for great violence. As Wagner rolled towards Moscow, uh, Putin, in addition to having Lukashenko make a phone call, find a peaceful end to this, uh, mobilized 2,500 of Russia's best special operations forces who were deployed in the fields in Serpukov, a town, a city south of Moscow. They were deployed to receive an assault. That means they were ready for war. And they were backed by 10,000 Russian National Guardsmen uh, with heavy equipment behind them uh, who were there to reinforce, outflank, and mop up whatever was left of Wagner. Um, meanwhile, down in Rostov, where Yevgeny Prigozhin had seized the uh, commander, of the, 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 the headquarters of the Southern Military District, responsible for overseeing the special military operations. So again, let's just understand. Prigozhin seized the headquarters responsible for overseeing Russian military operations in an active war zone in the midst of a Ukrainian offensive. Nice guy. Uh, 10,000 Chechen Ahmad special forces had been mobilized and had surrounded Rostov. And the signal had been sent to Prigozhin, we're coming for you, we're going to kill you, as only Chechens can. Now, they didn't say that. That's what they meant. Uh, they were, they were. I mean, the Chechens posted a video saying, we're here in Rostov. Uh, we don't know what's going on. It's crazy. But we've got our orders and we are going to execute our orders. Um, so Prigozhin was suddenly confronted with the fact that he and all of his men were about to die uh, because that's what would have happened had Putin said, pull the trigger, boys, pull the trigger. But the sad thing is that thousands of Russian soldiers would die. And because you're talking about combat operations in an environment where there are civilians, the potential for hundreds, if not thousands of civilians. Would die. And once you have people dying, the potential for emotions to become inflamed becomes real. At the same time Prigozhin was doing this, the Ukrainian intelligence services were seeking to implement an operation in Moscow coordinated with the movement of Prigozhin's forces that would have had subversive elements blow up, set off explosives amongst civilian uh, targets, creating a sense of terror, of fright. As Prigozhin was advancing, phone calls and internet messages were being sent to Russian civilians saying, Wagner will save you gather in, uh, I think it's Menagena Square. What were they seeking? A new Moscow Maidan to get civilians to gather in the square, protesting against Putin, praising uh, Wagner, praising Prigozhin. 
This is the coup. This is real, guys. This isn't fake. It ended because Putin is a strong leader. You know, Prigozhin had been carrying out a propaganda campaign uh, since at least January that targeted Shoigu and Gerasimov and Putin indirectly. Um, it was a campaign designed to win over the hearts and minds of not only the Russian people, but the Russian oligarchs, Russian generals. He was saying the generals are weak. We need real soldiers, real leaders, real men to come in and finish this job. He was led to believe by Ukrainian intelligence that as he moved on Moscow, uh, people would rally around him, that generals would defect over to his cause, bringing soldiers over. And you saw early postings where Prigozhin had photographs that had nothing to do with reality, but you saw the photographs of Russian soldiers with no weapons saying the border guards have put down their arms, arms and welcome uh, Wagner forces with open arms. It wasn't true, but they're trying to create this perception of surrender. It didn't happen. Nobody defected. Not a single person defected. Everybody rallied around yeah. uh, Putin. So, uh, Mr. McFall and Alpabam and everybody else, it don't know what you're talking about. We came very close to a nuclear war. Let me tell you why. Because had there been a civil war, had Russia, Russia would have had to put its nuclear forces on full alert um, because you have a coup happening at a time when the Russian intelligence services are briefing Putin that this is orchestrated by American forces, British forces, et cetera. They're trying to create this. There could have been uncertainty. There could have been you know, panic. Who knows? There could have been a nuclear war. So it's not a game, guys. This was dangerous. The question I have for Putin or for Biden is the following. You claim you did nothing because you didn't want the Russians to think that you were involved. And yet you also claim that you were very worried about the security of Russia's nuclear weapons. Well, which is it, pal? Were you worried about the security of Russia's nuclear weapons or did you not want to be involved? Because let me put it this way. Many times the United States calls up their Russian counterparts and says, hey, there's a terrorist cell operating in St. Petersburg getting ready to blow up a device. And the uh, Russian forces go, thank you very much. They go in and they disrupt it because we had that kind of cooperation. So if we're willing to make a to stop a terrorist from blowing up an explosive device, device in St. Petersburg, and this is a statement of fact, it actually happened. Why aren't we willing to call up and say, hey, Vlad, Prigozhin's getting ready to make a move to overthrow you. We're concerned that, A, you might think it's us, it's not, and B, we think that he might be uh, targeting a nuclear storage facility that's located around Voronezh, and we want to give you a heads up so you can take the appropriate measures. Why didn't we do that? Because we didn't want to stop Prigozhin. Because we were hoping that Prigozhin would start a civil war that would prompt yeah. forces to be withdrawn, etc. This was a very, very dangerous thing. Putin is stronger than ever. But I have to tell you, um, if you're Russian, you can't be proud of this. This is not a, a good look. This is banana republic type look, especially given that Russia just had a wonderful moment at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, where they demonstrated to the world that they have defeated sanctions once and for all that the Russian economy is churning ahead full speed, the strongest economy in the history of Russia. And then they have this. The part that I have a hard time getting my head around is this notion that Prigozhin could have been working with Ukrainian and Western intelligence. And I realized there's, even before all this happened, there were these Pentagon leaks saying that Prigozhin offered Ukraine the coordinates of Russian forces. But that, I mean, I found hard to believe just based on the fact that Prigozhin 
I don't think, uh, or Ukraine wouldn't need Prigozhin to tell them where Russian forces are, because I presume that the U.S. is already giving them those coordinates. So what use could Prigozhin provide there? And meanwhile, he is leading the force that mass that killed thousands of Ukrainian forces in Bakhmut. And his criticism all along was that Russia wasn't being aggressive enough inside Ukraine. And that's his main criticism of these Russian leaders. And so... Um, and that he wanted more support. And meanwhile, you do have this looming deadline where Wagner was going to be subsumed by the Russian military, uh, forced to sign contracts with the Russian military, which would have sidelined him. So to me, the you know official story that he was just angry about that and was trying to basically force Russia's military leadership to uh, back down and let him keep his little mercenary force uh, and force Russia's military to be even more aggressive in Ukraine – that to me seems more plausible than this notion he was working with, with Ukraine and Western intelligence. Well, why can't both be true? And let me tell you why I believe both are true. Russia is a is a nation that's based upon the rule of law. I know Anne Applebaum will freak out and say, "No, no, 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 no! Putin's a dictator, and there's no law in Russia." But it's actually a, law, a nation fully governed by the rule of law. And there is a couple of laws in place here. One, basic contract law. The Russian government had signed a one-year contract on 1 May 2022 with Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, providing him with $940 million to create a combat force of uh, contract soldiers who worked for the Wagner Group, not for the Russian Ministry of Defense. And Prigozhin executed that contract. Uh, He made a lot of money doing it. Uh, $940 million, of course, a lot of it goes to building this force, but Understand that one of the first things that Wagner did, that Prigozhin did, once it became clear that the fighting was extraordinarily difficult, extraordinarily bloody, was to talk to his commanders. He said, you know, we, we have these elite guys that we've recruited and they're dying by the bushel full. And it's going to be very expensive for me to go out and recruit new ones. How do we solve this problem? And they said, well, half the problem is the initial phase of the battle where we have to aggressively push forward under fire. We're going to lose a lot of guys there, but we don't really need the most skilled people in the world. And so Prigozhin went, why don't I go to the prisons and recruit prisoners? Which he did. Estimates are between 30 and 50,000 inmates were ultimately recruited by Wagner. 21 days of training. Anybody who says that every Wagner fighter is an elite fighter, you have no clue what elite means. Uh, 21 days of training does not produce an elite fighter. It does produce somebody who has basic skills who can by an elite fire, uh, implementing these tactics. It's interesting how uh, <laughs> Prigozhin saying Shoigu and Gerasimov are responsible for the deaths of thousands of Russians, that irresponsible, bad tactics, I could do a better job. But just time out, people. Shoigu and Gerasimov are responsible for the current state of Russian defenses. In the first three weeks of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, 13,000 Ukrainians died. Vladimir Putin says that the kill ratio is 10 to 1. That means 1,300 Russians have died. That's a big number, by the way. But 13,000 Ukrainians have died. Uh, in the battle for Bakhmut, using these tactics that Prigozhin used, the prisoner tactics, they killed 75,000 Ukrainians, but they lost 30,000 Russians. Now, I'm a simple Marine, but that's basically a 2 to 1 kill ratio. So if you're going to be Prigozhin and try and make the argument that my approach is better in terms of preserving Russian life. How do you do that? You can't. You can't square the two. 
This has nothing to do about tactics and everything. Prigozhin made a business decision to bring in the prisoners. He slaughtered them. He sacrificed them. He threw them into the meat grinder uh, to achieve a victory on the battlefield. And I'll tell you why that's important in a second. But he did so with total disregard for human life. So the notion that Prigozhin, some sort of genius military man who cares about the lives of Russians, is absurd. He threw them away. He sacrificed them. He ground them up in the meat grinder. Now, let's ask why he did this. You see, A, it was a business decision. He started recruiting them to make money. He's making a lot of money, by the way, because the cost of an inmate, both in terms of your salary, you don't have to pay him as much, but you've been budgeted for a full-scale Wagner guy, now you're paying for an inmate. And when they die, you don't have to pay the reparations. They're inmates. They go in the ground. That's it. Nobody gets paid. So you're making tens of millions of dollars that are going into your pockets. Good business deal for Bogosian. And remember, he's a businessman. He has no military experience whatsoever. A businessman. Now, and for, and I also understand, he didn't want anybody to know. Nobody talked about Wagner up until a certain point. If you remember, Bellingcat wrote some uh, articles that said Prigozhin was uh, associated with Wagner, and he sued them for defamation, saying, how dare you say I'm a member of Wagner, I'm associated with Wagner. But then something happened. You see, Wagner exists in the Donbass because it's not Russian soil. Wagner can get away with creating this unit on the Donbass soil, as long as it was the independent soil of Lugansk and Donetsk. But in September of 2022, there was a referendum, and the Donbass became Russia. And the second that happened, Wagner had a problem because, legally speaking, they can't operate on Russian soil. There's no Russian law that permits a private military contractor having a private army operating on Russian soil. Now, Prigozhin had a one-year contract, and because contract law is everything, it was agreed that this contract would be played out. But at the end of the contract, Wagner had to convert to a volunteer unit within the Ministry of Defense, which means Prigozhin loses his money-making abilities. One of the problems that Prigozhin was running into is he couldn't recruit prisoners anymore because the prisoner, in order to have the contract with the Russian government, needs a full six-month term. And if Wagner's term is going to run out on 1 May 2023, that means the last prisoner intake you could take is 1 December. And so he can't recruit prisoners anymore, so now he's got a problem. He's got to throw his boys into the fighting. The other problem he has is he has to win the hearts and minds of people. Notice when he came out. September 25th is when the referendum took place in uh, Lugansk. September 26th is when Prigozhin issued his uh, telegram interview saying, yeah, by the way, I'm the, head of, I'm, the, I'm the head of Wagner. Why did he do that? Because he knew he had a PR problem. He knew that if he left it, he would lose Wagner, lose his money. So he started saying, I'm the head of Wagner. Then he started saying, look how great Wagner is. He started attacking Shoyu and Gerasimov, criticizing them. The battle for Bakhmut should not have been fought. Wagner had just, uh, back in, um, I think in, uh, in March, April, Wagner had a great victory in Solidar, the, the neighboring city. At that point in time, the Russian military wanted to pause, stop. They didn't see a need to go into Bakhmut because it had no strategic value whatsoever. It's there. Let the Ukrainians be dug in. We'll just pound them with artillery. But Prigozhin had to create the perception of the invincibility of the almighty purpose of Wagner. So he created the meat grinder. He started this operation to inflict casualties on the Ukrainians, but in doing so, he threw away the lives of 30,000 inmates, 20,000 inmates, 10,000 of his own people, threw them into the meat grinder. But that's all anybody talked about now. It sees the headlines, the meat grinder, the meat grinder, Wagner leading the fight, Wagner, the heroes of Russia. And that's all everybody talked about 
And then when the battle ended, what did Prigozhin do? Through a, a temper tantrum, shouted at Shoigu. And every, why? Because all of his plans came, were, were to no, didn't reach any fruition. Shoigu said, hey, good job. Uh, but by the way, we told you not to fight this fight. You were supposed to be done by 1 May. You entered Bakhmut and kept this battle going for 20 additional days because you want a contract. You want to violate the law. You want to violate what we've said. Ain't going to happen. We give you a two-month extension. Get your troops out of Bakhmut. Settle down in Lugansk and be prepared to transfer over. And that's when Prigozhin went over there and started stewing. He had relationships with Ukrainian intelligence. It's not just the uh, story about the... um, the, 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 the coordinates. I don't believe that story either. That makes no sense. But we know that he was in contact with um, Ukrainian intelligence in Africa, and we know that they had ongoing relationships. Um, one of the ways we know about this is look at how Zelensky responded when the Washington Post confronted him with that. He didn't respond by, eh, you know, rumors, speculation. He was like, how do you know this? Where's your source? This is treason. Whoever talked to you is treasonous. I mean, Zelensky is panicking as he's told this. And it was a SIGIN source. Uh, the Americans were listening to Ukrainians talking about it wasn't about coordination or coordinates. It was about um, Wagner seeking to overthrow or put a coup d'etat in Moldova. So it's 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 there. And there's, there's other evidence that indicates that Wagner was um, in contact with the Ukrainians. And believe me, if you're in contact with the Ukrainians, you, that means that you're at least indirectly in contact with MI6 and the CIA. So there's an intelligence aspect here that the Russians are aware of. Lavrov's in, in, in hinted at it. He said there will be an investigation into this. Why bring it up if it doesn't exist? So I, I think that Prigozhin was basically a businessman who lost his billion dollar deal and who was turning to foreign sources to assist in facilitating a coup d'etat that would topple Putin, put him in power, and he would be able to stay in power by saying, I can get sanctions lifted. I can bring an end to the war in Ukraine. Because look at what he said before he went in. He spouted all Ukrainian talking points. We shouldn't have gone to war to begin with. We went to war on a lie. This is all about you know the empowerment of, a, of the Russian elite. This is a war that doesn't need to be fought. He's saying all that. Why? So he can be the peacemaker? Quick follow-up, Scott. Um, it's one thing to commit a failed mutiny. It's another thing to commit treason. And so if indeed Prigozhin, uh, as you suspect, did work with Western and Ukrainian intelligence, how does Putin let him live? Putin promised him amnesty for the for the mutiny yeah. and sent him to Belarus. Putin didn't. I, I call this the Al Capone effect. You know, Al Capone was a murderer, uh, committed a lot of crimes. He went to jail for tax evasion. OK, uh, Prigozhin committed treason. He, he, an armed insurrection is the living embodiment of treason. And Putin has pardoned him that for that sin. Go forth, go to Belarus and sin no more. But when he announced, uh, it's amazing because Putin came out and he, and he basically said, yeah, by the way, we, we had a contract with, uh, with Wagner, $940 million. Oh, and we gave um, Prigozhin a sweetheart deal too, a one-year contract, it's concurrent, uh, worth $900 million to provide food to the uh, to the Russian army. Now we don't know if it was spent right, if they walked away with it, but we're going to look at that. And I'm telling you right now that Prigozhin is a crook, a criminal, and the Russians are going to uncover massive corruption on his part, and he will be prosecuted for those crimes. The other thing is, if they find out that he, if they find the proof that he was actively colluding 
with foreign intelligence services. That's a different crime. He only got pardoned for one crime, taking troops in. The other crimes, he's still susceptible for, and he's under house arrest equivalent in Belarus, where he can't run away. So, no, he's dead man walking. His um, his days are numbered. They needed to get him out of the situation so that the Wagner troops would peacefully uh, disperse because he did build up this cult of personality. The loyalty of the Wagner people to Prigozhin is real. It's genuine. But notice this. Of the 25,000 Wagner soldiers, only 8,000 followed him into um, you know into Russia proper. The remaining 17,000 stayed in their camps in Lugansk because they said, we're not going to be a party to this. And Lukashenko now, the prime minister of Belarus, is saying that he brokered this deal that Putin wanted to um, attack, eliminate uh, Prigozhin and attack Wagner. Um, and he convinced him not to do this. Do you think that's true? I, I don't think that Vladimir Putin is somebody who, who um, is swayed. I think the, that Vladimir Putin said, um, if Prigozhin doesn't stop, I'm going to kill everybody. That's just the way it's going to be. And Lukashenko said, well, I know Prigozhin. He, and Putin's like, and? Well, I can call Prigozhin. And? I, I maybe can get Prigozhin to stop. And? Why are you talking to me? Um, because I'm telling you right now, if he doesn't turn around, I'm going to kill him. Lukashenko wouldn't have made that call unless Putin said make that call. Uh, so Lukashenko can take all the credit he wants. He deserves credit for brokering this thing. But Let's not pretend for a second that this is Vladimir Putin sitting there saying, oh, I'm going to kill him. And Lukashenko's calling up going, hey, boss, uh, I could cut a deal. I'm a peacemaker. I'm a good guy. This is the other way around uh, where you know Putin is uh, telling Lukashenko, if, if you have any pull with this guy, you better call him right now because in about five minutes, I'm going to kill everybody. Can you talk more about what you think Prigozhin was expecting to happen and hoping to happen? Sure. Um, again, now, now, Aaron, I know you're the professional journalist, and um, we're going to delve into the realm of speculation. And that's always dangerous in journalism, but I'm just being upfront about it. Everything we've talked about so far, I feel comfortable that I can put to a point and say, this is it. But now we're getting into you know, the, the darker world of speculation. But this is speculation. I'll call it informed speculation, because I'm going to be talking about MI6, and how they handle human sources. And I do have direct experience in that dating back to my Iraq days. MI6 operates a, a London station. Um, and London station is home to all sorts of defectors, including several oligarchs. Um, one, I think, is of note, uh, Khodor, Khodorovsky. I think um, you know he, billionaire, operates an information warfare center on behalf of MI6, closely coordinates with Bellingcat, probably an MI6 asset. So we have that there. Prigozhin's a businessman. There's, in addition to the two failed contracts that he lost, that's nearly $2 billion, um, uh, Ramzan Kadyrov uh, gave a statement where he, he talked about other business failures on the part of Prigozhin, that uh, he, he had tried to do certain things. And one of the, 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 the things that came out is a real estate deal for his daughter in St. Petersburg that went south that he was expecting to get it, and it went south. Real estate in St. Petersburg, uh, on, uh, when you get up into the dollars, is a very um, complicated affair uh, that involves a lot of fingers, a lot of hands, and many of those hands don't reside in St. Petersburg. They reside outside of St. Petersburg, probably in London, and um, probably controlled by MI6. So here we have Prigozhin, 
who is sending out all the red flags in the world. I mean, he's already in January, you have foreign intelligence services talking about him talking with Ukrainian force uh, intelligence services. Even if that's not true, it came from an official document, which means the intelligence services are talking about. He has red flags going. This is a man whom everybody is aware of now. They're following his businesses. Uh, the U.S. has indictments on him. The FBI has a file this thick on him. Um, he's not an unknown person. And so everybody's following him. Uh, now, the British, they're going to sit there and say, okay, so what is his primary motivating factor? It appears to be greed. This man likes money. So what do we need to do? We need to create opportunities for him involving money. And then we need to have those opportunities collapse so that he's even more desperate. So that we can then say, hey, we have a really good business opportunity for you if only this happens. So the response would be, but if I do this, what assurances do I have? Which is, you know, we're in contact with Russian politicians. We're in contact with Russian businessmen who have assured us that should Putin fall and you step in, they'll uh, they'll back you. And we understand that you're in contact with all the generals and you claim that all the generals are on your side secretly. So we think between the two of us, we have this nice little a package here. I think Prigozhin thought that when he crossed the line of departure and moved towards Rostov, that he would have Surovikin and um, Alexiev, these two generals who gave public statements saying, don't do this. But he was, I think he believed that they would do it. First of all, why did they give statements? Because everybody knows that, that Prigozhin had been in contact with them uh, in the lead up to this. Prigozhin was calling everybody, begging for intervention. And these guys, of course, being loyal servants of Russia, contacted the intelligence service and said, hey, Bergosian, talk to us again. And they went, all right, we'll just keep talking to him. Keep the line of communication open. Let's fig- let's find out what he's doing. But when Bergosian crossed in, they both came out and said, hey, boss, don't do it. Bad move. Yeah, this is this is not a good look. And they also appealed to the Wagner soldiers, telling them not to do it. But he also believed that there would be others out there. He believed that there was an entire cadre of combat-hardened uh, Russian leaders or military leaders who were as frustrated as he was with what they call the parquet generals, the generals that live in the, in, you know, in the shiny offices and never leave for the front lines. There is legitimate, I mean, Rogozhin has a point here. There is a, a legitimate um, gripe in the Russian military about a, a Russian leadership that is uh, removed from the reality of war, uh, oftentimes involved in things other than helping them in war, some corruption, some um, incompetence. There's legitimate complaints there. Uh, but he was hoping that these people, these combat leaders would rally around him. Um, didn't happen. And no politicians rallied around him. No businessmen rallied around him. He was isolated. But I think he honestly believed that everything was going to fall in place, that if he just started moving towards Moscow, all of this um, descent towards Putin that um, he had manufactured on his own, but he had also hyped up. People fed back saying, we're with you. He thought everybody would come. But it turns out, and this is again where McFall and Applebaum are just dead wrong, Putin is um, an extraordinarily popular leader. Are, are you saying British intelligence wanted Prigozhin to step into power or just destabilize Putin? I think they're number one. First of all, I think that uh, everybody understands that Prigozhin could never be in power. Uh, Prigozhin right. would never be the leader and all that. What they wanted was the collapse of, of Vladimir Putin's government. And then they have handpicked people in London that are prepared to come in and uh, and take over. Um, people who, you know, again, 
the, the oligarch class, people need to understand uh, when you have corruption, you have criminals and criminals aren't loyal to the country. They're loyal to money. And Russia is still populated by a tremendous number of criminal oligarchs who resent Putin, resent what he's doing and would be more than happy to throw their weight behind a, um, a new president uh, who promised the lifting of sanctions, who promised them wealth, not wealth for the nation, but personal wealth. And so they would have disposed of Prigozhin that quick because he's literally, he's a thug. I mean, you know, they throw that word around about Putin all the time. Putin's a thug. Putin ain't a thug. Prigozhin's a thug, straight up thug, you know, with the, with the rap sheet to prove it. So. So I asked you this when we interviewed you last, but things have changed. Your um, Biden, your Joe Biden, what do you do to bring this to a conclusion? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, that was extremely informative. As always with Scott Ritter, it's great to hear from him. And, you know, there's so much we didn't even get to. Zelensky recently said there won't be elections in Ukraine until after the war is over. Wow. He's uh, banned more members of the opposition. And uh, there's just been so much happening that it's hard to keep up. But uh, Scott is a really informed voice. And, you know, he takes positions that some people object strongly to, but he's someone I think is very, very informed, uh, having a military background, having, you know, challenged the Iraq war, tried to stop it using his reputation as a weapons inspector in Iraq to tr try to prevent the war. So I listen closely when Scott speaks and uh, that was really informative as always. Yeah, and make sure you uh, join either usefulidiots.subtech.com or usefulidiots.locals.com so you can see the full interview with Scott because, again, it's jam-packed with uh, really important insights and observations. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. <laughs>